On the Empire Podcast this week, we bring you all the movie news and reviews that are fit to pod, and we go fist to fist, toe to toe, and head to head with the man mountain that is Fernando Morelish. And we ask deep, searching, probing questions of Dolph Lundgren. That's probably the wrong way around. Hmm. Anyway, hello pod, I'm Chris Hewitt and welcome to this very special Olympic-sized edition of the Empire Podcast, the only film podcast that has jumped out of a helicopter with the Queen. That's true, that happened. Uh, As ever, I'm joined by three of my learned colleagues, bringing their collective wit and wisdom to bear on the week's filmic talking points. Hoping to clinch gold with a flawless double DiCaprio, followed by the most technically difficult move in the book, a perfect horror, is Helen O'Hara. Hello, devil, are you? I'm very well. I've already mastered the oh, Mel Mahay, so um, <laughs> pretty I'm, I'm pretty feeling pretty good now. That's Thank really you. good. How, you. how is your half har? Well, that that's gonna you know it's gonna see how it goes on the day. I'll have to give it 110 percent and <laughs> uh, and really you know leave it all on the floor. Well, I wish you well. Thank you. Uh, gunning for silver in the 10,000 meter men's appreciation of the films of the Dardenne brothers <laughs> is Team GB's art house Olympian, Mr. Phil Dissemblian. Fancy your chances? Uh, it's weird. I was actually having a conversation about the Dardenne brothers yesterday with a Belgian journalist. Really. She was referring to them as was she on a bike and I had literally no idea what she was talking about <laughs> she was just I was just like brothers based. none of that French nonsense with me yeah, they talk about Les Frères Wachowski or she, no she wasn't subtitled that's the no that's probably the problem <clears throat> of course they're no longer the Frères Wachowski no it's just the Wachowskis uh, and last but not least making a rare appearance in the podcast is a man hotly tipped to win bronze in the 4x400 Bane Impressions Relay race it's an empire legend Mr Ian Freer Oh, I can't actually do a Bane impression. Um, sort of being in the Empire office, there's a it's 24 hours of Bane impressions, and every yeah. now and then some work breaks out. And, uh, <laughs> it's, it's something like that. And so, if anyone can do a Bane impression and send it in to me, I can put it on my desktop. And when that happens, yeah, I can just press the button and play it. Yeah, yeah. So do that. So there's your challenge: send in your Bane impression to to Ian Freer, and uh, we might play it on the show next week. Maybe. Brilliant. Who knows? Yeah, we'll, yeah. we'll do that. Uh, Ian, I just want to point out your mug. This is your mug. Everyone in the Empire has a mug, except for me, because I don't drink tea or coffee. And it says, I wish I were dead. Yes. On it. Why does it say that? Uh, this is, uh, it's from the Onion website. And okay. it's for sitting in corporate meetings. <laughs> <laughs> and podcasts. <laughs> don't worry, make this relatively painless. Um, as ever, before we explode out of the blocks, we're going to tackle some of the questions you've been flinging at us, like wild and unmerited accusations of doping over the last week or so via Twitter email and Facebook so let's start off with a question from Facebook we've never had one of these before very excited Mm. I I just figured out how to do it actually Uh, it's from a guy called Bobby Hill probably his real name who asks other than your friends and colleagues at Empire offices are there other reviewers whose opinion you hold in high regard um, lots of them, actually. Um, chief among them, probably Anthony Lane at The New Yorker, who I think is a terrific <laughs> writer. Subtooky nonsense. Oh, yes. Even <laughs> even when I completely disagree with his conclusion, I always find his reviews completely fascinating. Um, and I actually also am a big fan of Devin Faraci at Chad. Um, or not Chad anymore, sorry. Oh! Uh, Badass Digest. Badass Digest. Yikes. Who always has an interesting take on things. He certainly does. Uh, Ian? Yeah, I would go for uh, Richard Corliss and Richard Schickel at Time Magazine. Um, I'm, a, as people probably know, I'm a big Spielberg nerd. And they are probably the best writers about Steven Spielberg around. I think uh, they wrote a piece, uh, Richard Schickel wrote a piece about Raiders, and Richard Corliss wrote a piece about ET, which is one of the reasons I'm a film critic, I think. They're, they're brilliant pieces. So I love those. Uh, the guys at the AV Club, this wrote very funny, very smart. 
and Anne Bilson, who writes just some stuff for The Guardian and has written some great, great film criticism. I'm worried now people are going to go looking for those people and never come back to Empire, but that, that's, that's not, true, obviously yeah. not the case. They're all rubbish. It's weird. On the, on the weird occasions we have um, sort of job applications and we interview people, we say to them, which writers do you like? And they say, oh, I like Chris Huey, I like Helen O'Hara. And we say, who do you like outside of Empire? And they never have any opinions. Mm. So it's a good thing if you're going for any sort of journalism job is to come armed with a list of opinions. It's just a good thing to have about which writers you like. Yeah, but not opinions about Nazis as we had once had. Uh, James and I interviewed someone for a job. James Dyer and I interviewed someone for a job once and went, so can you tell us anything about yourself? I love Nazis. Okay, great. <laughs> when can you start? <laughs> yeah. Uh, and that's how I got my job. <laughs> yeah, but, uh, see Kyle, Helen. Um, <laughs> anyway, Phil. Um, I go along with Helen. I really enjoy Anthony Lane's writing. He's a beautiful, beautiful writer and a great stylist. Um, Roger Ebert, you can't really Ebert. talk about Ebert. Ebert. I call him Ebert. <laughs> Way, I'm allowed to call him Ebert. Um, it's uh, he's just he just brings a lot of I don't know life experience I think and a compassion to his writing, which I think is really important. Uh, he there's insights in his reviews that you don't get anywhere else, which I really like. I'm a fan of Peter Bradshaw's writing The Guardian. Sometimes mm-hmm. I think he's very good. I um, watch and Peter I Bradshaw, have, my local uh, legends. Really? Mm. You shop in the same budget? It was, it was a seminal moment for me. Where was he? Okay. Yeah, he was, <laughs> he was in the Fresh Fruit product. <laughs> I mean, you were just passing. You were <laughs> I just, lost. I was, I was loitering. <laughs> um, and uh, I've got a Leonard, Leonard Moulton app on my phone. <laughs> <laughs> but that's more just to add... add what add, does up, that do? Ramp up I, the big question. I, I, I shudder my... to think what that does. <laughs> I love his cameo in Gremlins too, by the way. But uh, it is very funny. And what about you, Chris? You uh, well, I like uh, Ebert. is fantastic. Uh, uh, he's my go-to guy. Uh, and I, I yeah, Helen's going to kill me for this one, but I really like the writing of Jeff Wells oh, on Hollywood God. Elsewhere. Because, I don't know, he is uh, the, probably the biggest misanthrope in, in the Hollywood film writing community, but there's something about his writing that, that it just gets me. It's it's very vital and film noir, and I really, really like it. And what's your Jeff Wells issue, Helen? All of them. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't necessarily French. want mention, to hang out with him, but I do enjoy his writing. Can so. I mention Philip French's reviews are very dense. You, you, you feel like 25% smarter when you finish one of them. There's a lot of history in there. And David Thompson, which we'll yeah, probably add as well. Brilliant. Okay, fantastic. That's also out of a job. Uh, so, to Twitter now, and uh, at Bill Chick, uh, or Bill C. Hick, uh, who says, Screw the Dark Knight Rises! Batman and Robin is on TV, and he does hashtag Batnipples, and asks, What's the worst case of miscasting you've ever seen? <laughs> I don't know who you could possibly be referring to in that film, apart from everybody. Um... What is, about is, is George Clooney bad Batman casting or is it just no oh, he's alright actually yeah, that's a good shout yeah. Yeah, I, mean. I don't have a problem with the casting of that yeah. film actually sorry <laughs> I just nearly did a spit take what really well, I don't think it's the casting that's wrong well there are many many things wrong the about cast Robin. could still have gone right that's all I'm saying they could have yeah I in guess. those roles they could have gone right yeah apart from Arnold Schwarzenegger as Mr. Freeze. Oh, I just anything with Arnie and I'm I'm there. The bad and the bad. Ridiculous. <laughs> back, back to Bill's question. Yes, yeah, sorry. Yes. Miscasting. Um, Doctor Christmas Jones, perhaps. Uh, for me, I mean, Denise Richards as a nuclear scientist. I'm all in favour of jobs <laughs> for the girls, but I, I'm not sure even I buy that one. <laughs> Fair um, point. Fair point. Yeah. Okay, I would go for uh, Sophia Coppola in yeah. The Godfather Part Three. And I can see what he what what Francis Coppola is going for. He's going for someone who's very sweet and innocent and not in this world. And she's just dreadful. And she's a brilliant filmmaker, mm. you know, one of the most exciting filmmakers around. But I, I feel sorry for her. She's in the middle. Of, she's up against Pacino and Andy Garcia and real powerhouse actors. And, and I think she kind of lets the movie down a bit. 
a bit a bit a bit I was going to say Sofia Coppola as well but I mean I think Ian's tackled that one John Wayne is Genghis Khan <laughs> <laughs> and one that really bugs me because I think I, I can't it just it's one of those performances that just kind of ruins the film for me is Bob Dylan in Pat Garrett, oh, Sam yeah. Peck and Powers. Yeah. I know people. Other people Why, will disagree with this. I just find his his very presence very distracting and really weird and mannered. And it felt like a non actor who was in there for another reason. Um, Ricky Nelson and Rio Bravo gets to sing a song. Bob Dylan and Chris Christopherson never sort of at any point find a time in the script to. Uh, to do a bit of a duet unfortunately and it's just kind of annoying I find him in that film well it would be improved if they had something started singing no but I no I don't know I'm trying to glibly save something from it but I just not not a fan of that at all fair point I've also I've, I've been in the presence of bad acting or bad casting I was in um, on set of a film years ago called Blow Dry oh. which has which is a movie that casts uh, Josh Hartnett as a Yorkshire lad yeah, and I was watching him do his Yorkshire accent on the set. Oh no! And so you're in, you're in the presence of it. So I've, I've seen it live. Oh my god! <laughs> yeah. We attempted to run on and throw a blanket over his head and say, "Okay, everyone, this is done. <laughs> We're done here. Nothing more to see." Yeah, and you know, it's a shame. He's, Josh Hartnett can be great in things, and it's just, just that's a classic case of miscasting. I think. Oh, that's a shame. At Will Driver uh, asks, do trailers give too much away nowadays, uh, like Skyfall, the new Skyfall trailer that's, which debuted uh, this week, uh, which gives away Bond's apparent death? Well, that to me looks like a first act thing. Yes, clearly. so it's not even a, a, yeah, yeah. it's an opening credits thing yeah. or a pre-credits thing. So you know, I don't think that that's giving giving a lot away. I think the only problem is when you get into really last act stuff. Obviously, recent notorious examples, without saying too much uh, spoilery stuff about them, but pretty much the last shots of the Grey and Prometheus are in the trailers, um, which is perhaps not entirely ideal I mean certainly in Prometheus it's not quite clear It's obviously it's the last shot but with the grey you're literally waiting the entire movie for this shot that you've seen in the trailer to happen um, yeah. and that's a bit of a, a problem I think the, the most notorious example ever is still What Lies Beneath which um, ruined the big red herring that they set up the whole first half of the film is about this red herring which the trailer's already showing you doesn't matter so I, I had a big problem with that one I don't think it's a new thing, though. I think oh, no. if, you, if you look at trailers for 60s and 70s movies, they pretty much blow the whole thing. And the notorious examples for me are Mission Impossible. Oh, yes. Where the last shot of Tom Cruise flying through the, the, the tunnel away from the helicopter explosion, and then you're sitting there, well, an hour gone, I don't see any helicopters. 90 minutes, I don't see any helicopters. Two hours, oh, there's a helicopter. Oh, they're in the tunnel. Oh, I guess what's going to happen here. <laughs> so little sequences like that. Interesting enough, directors don't really have control over this stuff mm. I remember talking to Mark Stephen Johnson about the Daredevil trailer a few years ago when the movie was just about to come out and I was interviewing him and said you know I just watched the recent trailer and you can see Bullseye's death sequence <laughs> where he falls through the air and then you went yeah 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 that's nothing to do with me I've, you know they just give you the trailer and they say this is going out and you, you can object all you want but quite often the directors don't have power but it's interesting where you, you imagine the directors do have power like Ridley Scott You'd imagine that not a single iota of the Prometheus marketing campaign wasn't given to him to you know to pass and approve. So it's interesting when when they go, yeah. Well, I mean, I guess that in that particular case, it wasn't obvious that that was the last shot until you actually watched the film. True, but uh, I just do think it's weird that it's in there. Uh, at Sir Danny Boyle says, "Our mind is on Sir Danny Boyle, and rightly so, because he's almost inevitably he's going to get a knighthood now after the opening ceremony." I'm voting for a kinghood personally. <laughs> I thought it was terrific. 
I thought it was everything that um, you want of a British opening ceremony. Uh, a bit quirky, a bit weird, a bit nonsensical. Um, a little bit political, with a small P mostly, but very celebratory without being kind of triumphalist, which I think is, is great. Mm-hmm. And after the sort of, you know, uh, Riefenstahl-esque, you know, mechanical spectacle of... Um, of uh, Beijing a few years ago it was kind of nice to see something that that almost verged on shambolic but in the, the most complimentary possible way you know it felt exuberant and and kind of crazy you know you've got the industrial revolution happening and then you know a huge marching band of beetles marching past in one direction mm. while some pearly kings and queens go in the, the, in the other direction and sorry um, for a second I thought you meant one direction had been part of it no, no they, they were marching past no, in one direction one of, okay. the, one of the great um, sort of achievements I think of Boyle's opening ceremony was not including one direction in <laughs> oh fact. they're lovely lads oh I'm sure they're delightful lovely lovely lads what do we, what do we make of it um, I was in Spain in the weekend and we watched it in a hotel around a telly and it was just I don't just felt incredible pride about this thing in all its kind of eccentricity and idiosyncrasy and I was really interested in what you know you have the roundup of what papers around the world were saying about it and they seemed to kind of go yeah you guys are it was awesome you guys are kind of crazy <laughs> and I loved I think you know I, I don't know if Beijing was on a grander scale and more and more fluid but I love the fact that it started off with this everybody just kind of doing their own thing wandering around like yeah. picking grass no I loved it blowing, da- blowing dandelions at each other and um, and obviously as a celebration of film as well which which was very much yeah. so. fantastic to see and uh, that took the form of people like who was in it Sir Kenneth Branagh was there as Isabar King de Brunel yeah I think Americans thought that was Abraham Lincoln yeah they did <laughs> anybody in a top hat they're conditioned to believe is Abraham Lincoln <laughs> which is a bit confusing for the poor dears. Oh, well. dear. Who else was in it from a, from a film point? point from, of view? Well, I mean, you've got obviously the film characters in the sort of nursery rhyme yeah, uh, fairy Voldemort tale sequence. And, uh, yeah, Voldemort, Mary Poppins. An army of Poppins. Coming in. Um, a, a, a Queen of Hearts who looked obviously very much like the Disney version. Captain Hook also... Um, you know, so those have all been immortalised on film, but also, of course, in the music uh, sequence after that, sort of tracing the history of British music back through, they were playing loads and loads of film clips, and they were contrasting, I think, you know, British film clips and and clips from especially America, but also around the world. You know, so it was lots of different um, fathers telling their daughters that you're not going out like that. Lots of different kisses, lots of different, um, you know, first looks, whatever. So I thought that was really, really clever. Yeah, and and Danny got. Uh, I can't believe that Danny's a fan of a Chariots of Fire. So I thought he had fun with getting Mr. Bean into the into the middle of that and yeah. playing the theme and and doing that. So yeah, that was great fun. That was fun. Yeah, it reminded you how fun Bean can be because the movies are completely not that. <laughs> <laughs> but it was nice seeing him up there because he's a, Rowan Atkinson's like a he's a master of physical comedy. Yeah, and just that little bit with the umbrella and the, keeping yeah. the key the key mm-hmm. going. I don't know whether he was actually playing the keyboard. I suspect he wasn't, but I, I, I'm just guessing. I'm just uh, guessing, but you never know. He might have been, uh, but I loved it. So, knighthoods all round for us and yeah. and for Sir Danny. Yes, yeah, five stars, so. isn't it? Five, five stars. stars. Five stars. <laughs> Need it more, Branagh. Uh, at Robin Java a new podcast listener no less asks if you could choose anyone to play a Bond villain I don't know why Bond's in people's minds this week it must be a new trailer I guess uh, if you could choose anyone to play a Bond villain who would it be I'm going for Fassbender well since he's going to be the new Bond clearly in a couple of years time <laughs> you don't want to do that do you uh, Irish Bond I suppose so he could play British yeah, I, fearing into has, Irish <laughs> um, I'd go for Angelina Jolie interesting I think she'd be a terrific Bond villain Mm. There's not really history. I mean, there's a few Americans, but generally they're considered European, aren't they? It's kind of European villains mostly. Yeah, yeah. 
but why? You know, the Yankees can be bad too. Yeah. I'm trying to think of the uh, American villains. So Max Soren in *Feud of a Kill*, Elliot yeah. Carver, Jonathan Price plays him as American. Live and let die. Uh, Live and let die. Avocado. Yeah. Uh, yeah, you're right. Generally speaking, it's a Cold War Fleming thing, isn't it? it comes yeah. From, yeah. But you think in this in this modern world, then maybe it would cross over a little bit more. But also, it'd be interesting to have. I mean, we had we've had Sophie Marceau, but basically Sophie Marceau. But yeah, we haven't had a lot of primary villains nope. being being ladies in the in the Bond verse. So I think it's either her or uh, following Ian's law, Jean Dujardin. Uh, really, is the other option. <laughs> oh yeah, that would be fun. He is. We've see, we've all seen the Funny or Die sketch. We know he can do villain. Absolutely. So uh, it, it seems only a matter of time. The one one seven. He is he indeed. Is, yes. Presumably, he wouldn't expect Bond to talk. No, he'd expect him to die <laughs> or mime. Yeah. <laughs> one of the two. Now, I haven't got too many thoughts on this, but um, as a kid, it seems to me that every Star Trek episode had um, uh, Kirk fighting himself. <laughs> <laughs> so I think if if Bond can, if Craig can fight Daniel Craig in some weird sci-fi thing. I'd pay £10. That'd be fun. I am suddenly on board with Bond. Excellent. uh, Karen Krasanovich retweeted something last night. Some guy, some prospective concept artist in in the States had... uh had had done some storyboards of all the bonds coming together, you know, in a in a in a in a massive bond movie mashup, you know. So it's M sitting down with Daniel Craig and going, "Well, the, this threat to the country, you're the only active agent I've got, James Bond." And he goes, "You can't expect me to fight a war on my own." She goes, "Well, I don't. I've got some help." And then the storyboard shows the you know this this guy arriving on a jetpack and this other guy pulling up in an Aston Martin, this guy with a another guy with a watch with a laser beam coming out of it, and then these the you know it's Connery and Dalton and Brosnan and they. they and and uh, and the Craig character goes, "Who are you guys?" And, they go, and Connery goes, "The name's Bond, James Bond." And it's like, "Oh my god, I want to see this film so much." <laughs> yeah, they do it with Doctor Who, don't they? Yeah, they, they do it with Doctor Who. Yeah. Which, yeah, if anyone's wondering where the Doctor Bond uh, hashtag uh, Brenty came on Twitter last night, yeah, it's kind of my fault. But anyway, um, that that is obviously fan wish fulfillment. But I don't know. Is it something that could ever happen? There, there has been there have been theories knocking around for for a while, Ian, and you're the the Bond expert in the room here. That you know the Bond uh, assignation is a code name passed down yeah, from yeah, person is, to yes, person. Yes, and which, which makes sense of the actor changing every mm. yeah. Every and and there's films. there's a line somewhere about this never happened to the last guy. Well, that's Lazenby says yeah. it in yeah. on a Majesty yeah. Secret Service, but that, I think that was just a kind of in jokey nod. Uh, counting against that is the fact that the Moore Bond mourns Lazenby's wife's death. Yes. In For Your Eyes Only. And also uh, Brosnan references it yeah. at one point in his movies. So clearly it's meant to be the same character. But at the same time, how cool would it be? It'd be great, wouldn't it? It'd be amazing. Oh, I'd love to see that. Not even Angelina Jolie could stop six Bonds at once. Oh, she totally could. You think? Yeah, no okay. worries. Uh, speaking with Bond again, uh, at Joe Hazard asks, who do you think will record the Skyfall opening theme? My money is on Muse. <laughs> I'm not sure after their Olympics, I think. <laughs> Or indeed her last album, but anyway, moving on. I, I don't know. It's um, I thought all oh, the smart money's on Adele, isn't it? Everybody seems to so. think it's Adele. Yeah. It's never the person you think it is, is it? No, it's always, it's always somebody completely left field. So garbage in 1999. Yeah, what, you know yeah. when their moment had passed, and suddenly they go, "Yeah, garbage." Yeah. <laughs> and it was the only thing, perhaps mitigating against Adele, is that obviously she'll just have given birth when the film comes out. So if they're planning well, to publish, how pregnant is she? She's due in September. She's due in September. Mm. She kept that quiet. She did. This is wow, the heat radio. <laughs> <laughs> we are. We're in the heat booth. You might as well. Oh my goodness! So who's the father? <laughs> <laughs> But she's presumably already recorded it. 
if, if if yes, indeed. But then maybe she wouldn't be available to do publicity, and maybe they would try and get somebody who was. I don't know. Uh, Hopefully does, not. Does Thomas Newman have a shout in this? Does, does the composer get involved in these decisions? Because in the they, past, they, they write the songs. So yeah, they kind of so. Michael Kamen wrote "License to Kill," didn't he? Yeah, yeah. And John Barry wrote John Barry a whole bunch of stuff. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Phil, what, what do you what do you think in this one? Um, I well, I kind of assumed that it was going to be Adele. To be honest, I thought that I wasn't a big fan of the Chris Cornell. I love the Chris Cornell. No, I, I love the Chris Cornell. But I did watch. I went along to the Bond exhibition at the Barbican, which is great, and they had the opening sequence from from the film, and it's phenomenal. But I just I did, didn't love that. No, it's a really crunchy, muscular uh, song, and it has a, a proper tune as well. Which the, the last one, the Jack White Alicia Keys one, I was absolutely dreadful, and it sandwiched in between. The, I mean, the, the one before that was Madonna's Die Another Day, which is the mm. deer of Bond themes and then Chris Cornell was a, was a bit of a peak and then we went back to a dreadful one so we're doing a good one I personally would love to see another rock band have a go at it I'd love to see Foo Fighters have a crack yeah well I'm going for Golden BDI uh, <laughs> Die Another Green Day or Florence and the Lecter Machine <laughs> a very geeky front from Russia with Love reference uh, yeah fair enough and, uh, that's what know, I've got Florence, yeah, Florence and Machine's not a bad shout not a bad shout at all but I imagine we'll be finding out soon knowing how the podcast works it'll probably be announced five minutes after we record this and we'll have to run back in the booth and, and yep. do something else just like the Hobbit thing but we'll get that in a second because uh, that is that little lot sorted remember if you want to join the ranks the people who found questions read out uh, and, and dissected by us uh, get in touch via Twitter we're at Empire Magazine the hashtag is Empire Podcast you can message us via Facebook we're Empire Magazine and the email address if you do that old-fashioned thing, is podcast at empireonline.com. You can use the same methods to enter our weekly competitions as well. Last week's offered five listeners a chance to win a Blu-ray copy of Sherlock Holmes, A Game of Shadows, signed by Guy Ritchie, no less. The ridiculously easy question was, what is Sherlock Holmes's address? The answer is, of course, 221B Baker Street. Uh, and the winners are Stuart Baker, Connor Barrett, Shay Flynn, good name, Vincent Gandhi, and Paul Dolan. They're great names. I've got mm. All those good names. Good names. names. There seem to be a lot of Irish-themed names this week. Interesting. I have to stamp that out, Helen. Can't, ha- can't have that. Oh, I think it's the fine. The is a home bias. Uh, <laughs> no competition this week due to gold medal standard incompetence on the part of your host, but it should return next week. I'm reliably informed. Um, reliably informed by me, and I'm an incompetent loon, so we'll see how that pans out. Okay, before we get on to the movie news, let's get physical with one of this week's guests, a walking man mountain, the bruiser from Brazil. Yes, it's Fernando Moraes, the brilliant director of the likes of City of God, The Constant Gardener, and Blindness. He's back with next week's globe-trotting drama, 360, and he trotted the globe himself to come all the way to London and the Empire Pod booth, where he spoke to Helen and Ali Plum. Hello, and we're here with a special episode of the Empire Podcast with Fernando Morales. Welcome. Hello. Hello. You good? And uh, now, obviously, you are the director of uh, City of God, Blindness, The Constant Gardener, and we're here today, more or less, to talk about your new film, I guess, which is 360, which uh, closed the London Film Festival last year, isn't that right? Or did it, it, it open? opened. It opened. It opened. I apologise. Yeah. Uh, I remember it being a very big fancy gala screening with everybody in black tie, but I couldn't remember if it was the beginning or the end. Um, <laughs> So that's obviously a, a huge vote of confidence. And now, finally, people are getting to see it in August. Yeah, it's opening here uh, after one year. <laughs> <laughs> so can you still remember anything about it? <laughs> yeah, you know, I haven't watched it since then, but I think I know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, it's another British film. 
It's I should get a visa, okay. a British visa at this so, point. Yeah. yeah, I think so. I, I deserve think... it's the third British film. So. <laughs> the first three minutes, it's just all the different places it's been involved with. It's, you know, different production companies you're involved with. Was this a bit of a, a difficult one to pull together? Some, well, not for me, because I'm only the director. But I think for, for the producers, it was quite tricky. Mm-hmm. Because uh, the film, uh, the story takes place in, in Vienna, Paris, uh, London, and in the U.S., Denver and Phoenix. And, and, and there are two, uh, three countries that are co-producing the film. So the contract part is very complicated. You know, three languages and different laws in each country. And so that was a bit tricky. I was going to ask about the sort of just the technical challenges of of shooting in so many places because, you know, your films before have, have been based in more or less one city, one place, roughly. Yeah. Was that a was that a bit of a shock? No, it doesn't change much actually because uh, I mean, as I was saying, it's for the director. I'm, I'm taken there. The actors are there. The camera is there, and, and I just shoot, you know. <laughs> but of course, for production, it's, it's more complicated because mm. in each place you have you need a, a local crew because of tax credits and all that so it's more to deal with all the amount of people involved in contracts and and, well the the film is spoken in eight languages this is a bit tricky yeah (laughs) so did you have to brush up on all your different uh, languages because yeah it's an extraordinary mix yeah, there's a bit of Arabic and Russian, which languages that I don't, I don't speak. I don't speak German neither, but uh, I speak English, and the actors could speak English. So, and uh, well, we managed. Yeah, some conversations it would be English and then Arabic and then French in the same conversation between two people, and you go, "Wow, okay, well, I'm guessing that's right. I'm trusting the subtitles guy. This sounds good." Yeah, on the set was more or less the same because mm-hmm. we we had, of course. A people crew for, from from Austria and from the UK and from France all the time so it was a bit of a babel mm. which is quite interesting I like it you have an extraordinary cast I mean you list off five people that everyone would know well I like to think everyone would know Anthony Hopkins Jude Law Rachel Weisz you know the list goes on and on Ben Foster Ben Foster of course <laughs> um, but at what point did you uh, get involved with the film? Did the film already have this extraordinary cast when you came into it or was it you that kind of attracted them to come on board? Yeah, no, uh, actually I was invited, I was sent the script by Peter Morgan, who wrote it. Peter Morgan wrote uh, also The Queen, uh, Last King of Scotland, and The Deals, which mm. was a TV show that I watched it here, I loved it. Anyway, I wanted to work with him, and he's, he, he wrote it, the, the script because he wanted, you know. He wasn't hired to write it, so it's a very personal story. Peter lives in Vienna, he works in London and in the US, so he travels every week. And he wanted to, to write a story which is a bit about his own life. I mean, airports and airplanes and, and a very generic environment, hotels. And, and uh, so that's the story that he came up with. But it's kind of uh, partly inspired by or, or influenced by, anyway, the, the Arthur Schnitzel play, isn't it? Uh, La Ronde, is that right? Yeah, there's this this display. It really triggered the, mm. the, the script, but I think it was not much more than that. Mm. In that play, which was written 100 years ago, uh, uh, one character starts with one character, then meets the second one who meets a third one. So the play actually is nine sex scenes, people uh, meeting for sex, and that's how it would go. So he used more or less of this structure of one people leading us to the next one and the next one. 
but the stories that are told in the characters are different. Mm. Well, both both stories starts in Vienna with a prostitute, so that's something <laughs> in common. But I, I don't think there's much more than that. Yeah. Well, it deals with desires and, and sex, sexual drive. So, well, there's some points. You see. Yeah. <laughs> Three sixty doesn't tell one story; tells ten stories. And what really connects the stories is that uh, we have almost all the characters are good people trying to do their best to be good citizens, good husbands, and good fathers. And but they're all taken somewhere else uh, by their own desires and impulses, and, and you know. And so, actually, it's about the struggle that we we this fight we we, we fight with ourselves between what we want to be our in between our rational side and our primitive side what yes. is inside us and you know people dealing with this all the time yeah I mean you have a great cast to get that across I think my favorite was Anthony Hopkins who I thought was just terrific even by his standards uh, in this because yeah, he has it, a monologue in the end yeah. of the film which is brilliant isn't it absolutely fantastic that was that was probably my favorite scene but um, I think it's mine as well <laughs> <laughs> that's true but you now, now you're going to get in trouble with the rest of your cast yeah <laughs> no but but the, the thing about that scene is that uh, uh, Tony, uh, Anthony Hopkins, he's, he's an alcoholic himself. I mean, he's sober for 32 years now. He doesn't he doesn't even want to drink anymore, but he keeps going to AA meetings because he said that he feels at home. You know, he likes, it's like his tribe. That's his words. Anyway, in, in that scene, uh, uh, he managed to, to start saying the lines that were written by Peter. So he starts the scene as the character and suddenly he, he starts talking about himself, like if he was in a meeting, you know, in a proper uh, meeting, and talks about a priest who actually is the guy who saved him, who, who took him out of, of drinking. And and then in the end of the monologue, he comes back to the story, to the script, and, and you know, it's like a play, a jazz play, a yeah. jazz musician that yeah. starts with the theme, goes for a solo, and then comes back to the, it was so brilliant. And, and, yeah. it's, and you believe in every word, it's really, it's very, very emotional, I think. It must be good when that kind of serendipity happens on set, when someone just takes something and then, you know, yeah, yeah, elevates yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. And he said, I mean, his interest in, in working in this film was really because he said the story of the character that he plays is really like he, the story of, of his life. Mm. And was the name decided on the script when you received the the script? Did it say three sixty? Yeah, yeah, it was al- already there. It seemed like a modern and modern way of saying it. Yeah. My one problem is is that if you type in three sixty review, you do get a computer games console will come up. Oh, really? Yes, Xbox three sixty. I'm just saying it now. I know it's too late to change it. <laughs> it's just a tricky one. But you know, I'm happy with that because uh, the, this film first opened in Toronto last year, and there was a girl from the Guardian. Who, who didn't like at all. Actually, he hated the film. We, we're getting good reviews now. That's why I'm, I'm saying this. Otherwise, I would be quiet. Anyway, she hated. And, and because it was from The Guardian, every time you would type 360, the first thing that would come was her, her was really irritating, you know? Yeah. Because I, I've been interviewed in Brazil, I mean, four or five months ago, and people, the first question was, I know these films have uh, divided opinions, and uh, you know? And just because she had the first. SEO So I'm internet. very glad to know that there's a, a, any kind of. <laughs> yeah, any distraction. <laughs> any distraction there. Anyway, she, her, her, her review's not there anymore. Yes, it was, <laughs> I'm very glad to know that. Forcibly removed, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, what about also reuniting with Rachel Weisz on this project? Because obviously, you know, you you won her an Oscar really for The Constant Gardener, and she was terrific in that film. Um, was it was it kind of good to get back to working with her? Yeah, I think we we we, we really know how to work with each other. I like very much improvising and, and testing different ways to to perform to to to. Uh, to experiment the scenes, you know, and she likes to do that as well. So I, I call her because I wanted to to try, you know. And in fact, she did. I mean, the scene. There's a, a her first scene is, is a love making scene. She meets a lover and she wants to break up with her lover. And uh, it, the 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 lines that were written was really half page. It was like fifteen seconds, uh, twenty seconds, and that was it. But she started improvising, and the guy is a Brazilian actor, Juliano Casarré. It's a very good one. And both of them, they really found the chemistry, you know. Mm. And uh, so the scene kept going on and on. And and, uh, and thanks for her, because she, she wanted to do, and she's always pleased to, to try different approaches and, and bring new lines, and, and I loved that. We were working with very busy people and, and big names, and they, I mean, they, they couldn't stay longer, you know. And uh, and we're talking here about Ben Foster or, or Hopkins or Rachel Weisz or Jude Law, but all the other actors from the film are really big stars in their home country, like Jamel Debus in France, he can't walk in the streets, mm. or the, the Russian guy, who I had never seen before, he, he's he's the, the Russian Brad Pitt, you yeah. know, <laughs> Vladimir Vidovinchenko, and and when you watch him on, in the film, he's he's such a presence, isn't he? Yeah. You really, at first you don't like him much, but immediately you, you relate to him and you like him because he has such a charisma. And the same with, with the Johannes Gris from Austria and Maurice Blattbra from, from yeah. Germany. Germany. They're all very known in their home countries. So do you think in part that this, when the posters must be totally different for the different countries? For Britain, it's going to be Jude Law, Anthony Hopkins. That's exactly what's happening. Of course, they, they keep uh, Anthony Hopkins and, and, and Jude Law and, and Rachel in all the posters. But we have Johannes in the Austrian, uh, Maria Flor, which is the Brazilian girl, very known in Brazil. Mm. In our posters, the three of them plus Maria Flor. And in each, of course, the Russian uh, poster probably will be only Vladimir, <laughs> and then a little photos below, below Jude Law. And <laughs> That's a clever marketing strategy. Other films should uh, should start doing the same thing. You know? Well, it happened by chance because the story needed. I mean, but it's true. Every country has a different poster using their own stars. That's awesome. Yeah. So what and the trailers as well. They're very different because they want to use their, of course. And did you have approval of each one? You went, yes, that's 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 the way yeah. I want to show it. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the one I like better is actually is the Austrian poster, the uh, poster and and trailer. They really got it. Mm-hmm. Okay, we'll have to look that up. Yeah. Um, what have you been doing since since this film wrapped? Because presumably it finished. You, you finished making it what last sort so, of so, so, yeah. September? We showed yeah. We showed here in London. It was October. The festival is mm-hmm. October, right? Yeah, and and since then I'm involved in some TV projects in Brazil, and uh, and now I'm preparing a film to be shot in November. So I'm here in London this week, also for pre-production. It's a film called Nemesis, mm. which tells the story about Onassis. It's a story about hatred wow. between Bob Kennedy and Onassis, set in the 60s and 50s, the most 
the, the richest guy in the world at the time with the most powerful guy and they hated each other and it's a very interesting story a lot of scandals and sex and, and, and wow. killing and I it's see, quite nice I, I can see Peter Morgan writing that one no no, no <laughs> this is yeah this is uh, this, enough uh, presence yeah this script is, uh, it's been by, written by had been written by Braulio Mantovani who wrote City of God that I direct mm-hmm. so after 10 years finally <laughs> I was able to hire him again I never had money to hire him again since he became a very expensive uh, writer. <laughs> <laughs> okay, time for the week's movie news. Only one place to start, I guess. Now we've got the Olympics out of the way and pretty much Bond as well. And that's with confirmation of last week's rumour that Peter Jackson has decided to make a third Hobbit movie. The untitled project will be released in the summer of 2014. It'll probably have a title by then. But do we think there's going to be enough material for it? And what do we think of this move in general? We kind of covered this last week, but that's, that's, let's do it again for all time's sake. <laughs> Jackson's statement basically said that he sat down and watched the assembly of what they've got so far and that he found the third movie there. So they've, they've, they clearly think they've got the material for it, um, that there's enough kind of good stuff in, in what they've already shot that, you know, there is a third movie there. And I guess once you consider the amount of kind of mythology around Middle Earth, um, both in The Hobbit itself and The Lord of the Rings and the appendices, you know, you can probably make something of that um, and they obviously have so I guess we've got to just trust him yeah I just think you know he has such a, a feel for that world he has such respect for Tolkien that you know in Peter Jackson you trust wouldn't you I guess so I think a lot of people are going how can you stretch a book that's what 300 pages Helen yeah into tops. three films when you know you struggle to fit a thousand pages into three films um, but it doesn't sound like he's just adapting The Hobbit and it sounds like they're they're making up an awful lot of stuff. They're, they're embroidering yeah. on it. Yeah. Evangeline Lilly's character is something that completely they're... new. But also they're they're bringing in all that stuff that appeared kind of off page in the Hobbit. So Gandalf went off and um, and teamed up with the other wizards to you know attack the necromancer. But it, you never saw any of that. You just had mm. it reported in about a paragraph really uh, in the book. And that's all going to be on screen. And certainly from from a few things that um, Benedict Cumberbatch said there's reason to believe that the participants in the in the fi- big final battle of the five armies are going to be slightly enhanced let's say from the book in in line with that story thread okay so i think there's there's a little bit more weaving in and out of stuff that we didn't see on screen in the book as it were yeah for example and we, we've known this for a while but bard the bowman in the book basically just shows up out of nowhere takes down a principal villain I don't want to ruin it for anyone who hasn't read the book uh, and then just disappears again and he's played by Luke Evans in the movie and he's being given a lot of backstory and a lot more to do so he's more heroic and manly um, and I guess they're going to now are they going to do additional shooting are they going to incorporate the likes of Aragorn and Legolas and, and, and meteor roles I don't think so because I think the third film is on people just consisting saying goodbye to each other <laughs> 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 Two hours. There's, there's, four, there's fourteen dwarves, isn't there? Is it fourteen? Yep, yep. And that, that's a lot of goodbyes, isn't it? And it's all so. slow motion as well, I believe. Yeah. <laughs> we, we had fifteen minutes of footage left over, so if we slowed it down, there might be enough for a movie there. Um, it's interesting though, because a lot of people, and I've been slightly surprised by this, because you say in Jackson we trust, and yep. previously this man could do no wrong yep. with this franchise. But there's a lot of negativity, not just on our Twitter feed, but in, on the internet in general towards this decision. A lot of people saying this is just a, a, a cash-in in a way. And It's the Harry Potter model, isn't it? Where you release like two films at Christmas, then you release the, the final thing in, in the summer. Mm. And 
I, I guess I can see why people feel like that. I, yeah, I just, I don't, I, I just cannot see it from Peter Jackson. He's got enough cash knocking around. He's doing all right for himself, I think. I don't think this is a financially motivated decision. I think if he's found enough footage there, if he thinks he can make it happen, I'm very, very intrigued to see the results. Because it's going to be very difficult. I mean, how do you restructure a third film all of a sudden? I mean, if you're doing some additional shooting, fine, do you know, do a lot. But presumably they, they wrote the script. Presumably they have... The, the template for parts one and two to suddenly bring a third film in what's what's your what's your narrative structure for that how, how you are you this film to suddenly climax with a cliffhanger that wasn't there before so uh, maybe he's uh, you know he clearly knows what he's doing so I was I'm just going to say that I mean I guess the advantage is that the, uh, this model of shooting in blocks and shooting presumably what they thought was going to be two films yeah in three blocks gives them just you know a, a chunk of a footage which they can then maybe augment or just enhance or add to as they go so structurally might be easier yeah. um, you couldn't shoot you know independently and then just tag along another film um, yeah I personally I, I, I kind of remember being in New Zealand around the time when Warner Brothers flew in and they, they had this big battle and I remember going back to you know, Guillermo being attached to it um, it it, I, it just seems strange to me at this point that they suddenly decide on a third film and and I'm slightly I just like to see Peter Jackson moving on to other things basically that's sort of my perspective and he will in time and really <laughs> this is only adding another six months onto his, his schedule no sure sure so yeah I do still want to see, see him for if he, yeah, I do still want to see him make Temerara which he has the rights to which yes. would be terrific that'd be amazing and Dan Busters and Dan Busters but mostly Temerara and Brain and Dan Dan 2 and Frighteners 4 and all sorts of stuff that'd be amazing uh, is that what's on our movie minds this week Helen have you, do you have anything else you want to that, you that was the, the big story I think um, an, an interesting little aside was that John M. Chu um, is apparently being uh, targeted to direct a new Masters of the Universe film mm. uh, so we could see He-Man back on the big screen um, now obviously John M. Chu just uh, has been working on G.I. Joe 2 which went back to next year having mm-hmm. been due about a month ago um, so he's got a little bit of work to finish off on that but you know that's some experience of working with you know films based on toys and muscular and, behemoths and muscular behemoths mm-hmm. um, so you know you would think that he's got a bit of a, a start from Master of the Universe and of course also you know in G.I. Joe 2 we have the muscular tastic duo of Dwayne the Rock Johnson and Channing Tatum. So casting half done, right? Yeah, pretty much. What do you mean, stack them on top of each other? Yeah, pretty much. To play one He-Man. <laughs> it's amazing. like it's like one of those Transformer sets where you had to put them all together to make the the, the finished structure. Who's going to play Skeletor? Um, I would say either Michael Fassbender or Christian Bale because they lose weight really fast. Yeah. Or David Moyes. <laughs> David Moyes if he's not already playing Gollum sorry sorry Evertonians you're getting your and football nonsense <laughs> out of our podcast Chris um, I don't know I don't know Is there a, I'd love to see Daniel Day-Lewis do it because he'd probably go method he'd strip the flesh off his face and go around going I am Skeletor Daniel please eat your please eat your food no I'm Skeletor oh Daniel um, but that'd be interesting We'll see. Hmm. Hopefully they can find a place for Dolph Lundgren. Who will I hope be so. on this podcast in about five minutes' oh, time. Amazing spoiler. I know. Um, but yeah, it is interesting. And I'll tell you what is slightly promising about it, um, you know, on a scale of 
promising anyway. It's um, not promising, is it? Well, no, the film isn't promising, but what's slightly promising <laughs> about the film is that at least it's not going to be like the original Master of the Universe film where they all came to Earth for no good reason. It's at least going to be apparently set in Eternia. Uh, and maybe they'll feel slightly less ludicrous on home turf. Yes. That's all I'm saying. Yes. Okay. Okay, cool. <laughs> uh, I've, got, I've got two words. Ram Man is my favourite toy. Yeah. Yeah, get Ram Man in there and you're sorted. Yeah. Uh, Ian, what's on your mind this week? Uh, I'm very excited that there's going to be a new Cameron Crowe film. Hey! hey. Yeah, uh, Emma Stone has signed hey. on, is signed on for it. And the kind of rumour is it's his script, uh, Deep Tiki, which uh, was going to star Ben Stiller and Reese Witherspoon. And I think the, the idea it's about uh, a sort of weapons expert who gets deployed to a Hawaiian island uh, to, to oversee a satellite spy and he has to win over the uh, Hawaiian elders. So it's a bit kind of local hero and you know, I know Crow talked a lot about local hero in terms of We Bought a Zoo. Um, mm. And so it feels like that. It feels a bit like Joe versus the Volcano. It has that, that sort of element. Yeah. And it's just Cameron, Cameron Crow making films. He's just good. And I think Emma Stone... I think she's less Manic Street Manic Street Preachers Manic <laughs> Manic Pixie Dream Girl than so Kirsten Dunst was in, in Elizabeth Town so you know, she'll ground it so hopefully it should be fun fantastic you know, that's great wasn't he talking about this having some sort of action element a couple of years ago as well and that's exciting so some sort well, of yeah, what's, yeah. A, what's a Cameron Crow action movie like yeah you know, that'd, be, that'd be massively yeah. interesting well, cool. I was looking at the, um, the Empire talkback on this uh on this story on on the site and um, uh, somebody called Ben Tramer and I don't think that's his real name because that's who Laurie Strode fancies in Halloween <laughs> so, yeah, but apart from that but he says can you imagine asking for a ticket for Deep Ticky it sounds like porn <laughs> <laughs> well double bit with Pacific Rim and you'll be fine <laughs> I imagine or Frank and Weenie yes. um, yeah Deep Ticky Cameron Crowe's Deep Ticky yeah. I don't know I can see myself paying to see that in a hotel well, room. I'm not, sure, I'm, not, I'm not sure that proves anything, to be honest. Yeah, precisely. Uh, Phil, what have you got? Um, well, sad news. This week, uh, Chris Marker died in Paris, and he is incredibly influential um, in a number of ways in, in, in sort of the filmmaking. It's kind of, you, he's somebody that you can't really describe just as a filmmaker. He, he's an artist, really, a multimedia artist, but he's best known for his uh, 1962 sci-fi 30-minute Legette, which is obviously the inspiration behind Terry Gilliam's 12 Monkeys. Um, I discovered that Terry Gilliam's never actually watched this film. It's It's kind of a photo essay I guess you could call it um, it's stills and it's set to a, a kind of a classical score and it's about um, a soldier in post a post-nuclear Paris who's tortured he's kind of subjected to a time travel experiment by his captors and they send him back to find salvation for this current kind of uh, Judge Dredd style desolate earth and um, it's not just the inspiration for uh, 12 Monkeys but you know films as diverse as The Matrix Terminator mm. without it there could be no time cop <laughs> <laughs> um, and source code and, and it just incredibly influential um, he was he was somebody that um, kind of emerged through the, the, the Parisian left bank and mm. the new wave filmmakers and someone that was close to people like Alan René uh, Agnes Varda and such like and he explored memory uh, and travelled extensively and made documentaries about that Le Jeté is a short and it's on YouTube so you can you should go, yeah, go and watch it yeah it's fantastic yeah, yeah she, mm. she and, and if, you want, if you want to check out some of his other stuff uh, Sans Soleil which is kind of his 80s it's kind of a travelogue movie but but a very different and original one and he made a movie called AK which was he was on the set of uh, Curious Always Ran 
mm-hmm. and it's just it's one of the it's one of the most underratedly seen making ofs ever made. And it's terrific. It's you can get it on a Criterion disc. So. Um, uh, it's actually worth exploring. It's really good. He was French and changed his name, but nobody really, you know, he didn't do any interviews. He was very, I guess, reclusive is the wrong word, but he was he was media shy, should we say. People asked him to send pictures. He'd send a picture of a cat, famously. <laughs> that's great. Yeah, and it, I kind of, his, his nickname in France was Magic Marker, so that's, that's, that's <laughs> worth it for that, isn't it? <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, Chris Marker, who died this week. Well, we've had our next guest locked away for some time, figuratively speaking, of course. The legend that is Dolph Lundgren, a man who's been known to best opponents with just a lock of his improbably lustrous hair, popped in the day after the Jemison Empire Awards back in March for a fun Q&A that touched upon his whole career, his affinity for chemical engineering, and, of course, The Expendables 2, his new movie in which he teams up with Stallone, Schwarzenegger, Statham, Willis, Lee, Norris, Van Damme, Cruz, Couture, Hemsworth, Dozy, D, Bicky, Mick and Titch. Here are the highlights of the chat... And he was speaking to me, Ali Plum, and Nick Dissemlian. Okay, our next guest in the Empire podcast is an icon, a legend, a veritable man mountain. He's a star of films like Dark Angel, one of my personal favourites, Masters of the Universe, Rocky Four, Command Performance, Universal Soldier, and of course, The Expendables. He is Dolph Lundgren, and it's a pleasure to have you, sir. How are you? Thanks. Well... Do you keep up with with films yourself? Do you, do you watch a lot of stuff? Yeah, I watch some things, but I don't watch a lot. Like you know, there's so many movies out now. Like to keep up with that, it's like a full time job. And mm. I'm usually making making pictures. I'm busy yeah. making them. So I'd seen the artists, which I liked a lot. You know, and mm. uh, you know, talking of the Oscar fair, but. I hadn't seen the last Harry Potter. It looked good, but you know, I hadn't seen it. What about things like action movies? I mean, for example, you you, you direct a lot of movies now yourself. I mean, do you, do you watch things like The Raid? Yeah, yeah, I saw that. That's wonderful. Yeah, what a great picture. Oh, amazing. Do you- I mean, that, that was just one of one of the most aspiring films I've seen for a while. Because you know, I've done films for a couple of million dollars. That was done for a million dollars. Yeah, and you know, really, really well made. Absolutely. Does it make do you do you look out for tricks of, uh, of the train something that you can you can use yourself? Yeah, you do a little bit, but you also get inspired by somebody's uh, guts to to make a film, you know, that kind of violent. Which now, especially in America, you know, people are shying away from that. Oh, there's too much blood, there's <laughs> yeah. too much violence. But you know, if you think about it, if you do a film in that genre, if you deliver, even like the the ladies like it. Yeah. I mean, they want a little bit of scare. That's why they go into theaters. So yeah. I think it worked really well. In a way, was this movie different for you? Because obviously Simon West is the director now, not Sly. Uh, there's a few more people in the cast, you know, like Jean-Claude Van Damme and, and Chuck Norris, as, as you've said. Mm-hmm. Did it feel different to making the first one? It felt a bit different because when you make the first one, you know, you don't know if it's going to work and everybody's kind of, there's that kind of new territory feel to it when you're working, which is sometimes good creatively because you take, you take big risks, you know, because you have to make it a success. Whereas in the second one, it's like a second take. If they say, wow, the first take was excellent, just give me a second one, then you say, what's the actor going to do? You're going to try to match the first one, right? <laughs> yeah. You can't say that as a director. You have to be clever and go, you know, that was pretty good. Now give me a second one and have fun with it or something mm. like that. So the second one um, was different for me because on the, in the first one, my character was very, uh, you know, interesting and colorful and the, the arc was tremendous, right? Yeah. From like good guy to really bad guy to like, dead to like alive <laughs> you know so so now I'm like I was even shocked am I alive at the end what happened but I was dead <laughs> but uh, Sly's like oh, I want you back you know so um, this one I was just basically one of the team I just kind of treading along with everybody else doing the you know doing the 
Expendables business. But but uh, as a matter of fact, I didn't like the first script, the first draft of the second script uh, for the second picture uh, mm-hmm. for, for the Expendables too. So I, I I didn't want to make it. And then Sly came in and changed Garner and made him a little crazier, like in the first one. Yeah. Uh, which I liked much better. So then, you know, I ended up doing it. But it was um, it was fun to hang with the team for the whole movie instead of just showing up like the, you know, like even Terry Crews and Randy, they didn't know me, you know, just, just think, oh, this guy's weird, you know, Jesus. <laughs> they didn't know me. They didn't think he, I was like Gunner, you know what I mean? Like drug, <laughs> drug addict, killing people, basically. But now we got, you know, I got to be friends with everybody, which is kind of cool. So uh, Gunner's to be trusted this time around. Yeah, more or less. <laughs> Unless he sees, uh, sees, he sees liquor, then. <laughs> and he's off the chain. He's off. Um, yeah. yeah, I was uh, I was lucky enough to be on set of the first movie, and I saw you uh, doing a great fight with Jet Li. Oh, uh, on wow. set it was on the Somalian pirates uh, oh, ship. Oh yeah, that, that, right. that, that wow, first that fight. Great. Yeah, yeah. Um, any any standout moments this time around? Do you get to go knuckle to knuckle with anyone else? Um, well, there is the set pieces are bigger. Like there's a lot of like boats and craft and you know bo- uh, choppers and trucks and jeeps and things like that so a lot of it was <laughs> mechanical in the first one you know? okay yeah uh, well there's a standout moment when uh, me and Randy Cruz were going to take a jet ski um, you know on this Bulgarian lake which looks like um, Burma it's, it's okay. really cold but it's got palm trees because they're shooting it for Burma okay and we're going to take the jet ski up into this plane to this moving seaplane and of course we're doing it for real for some reason I don't know why but that should have been green screen and Randy Couture you know <laughs> after the adrenaline kicks in he's gone you're like Randy wake up come on man don't kill me please I don't know I just barely survived I fell in and take one and take two <laughs> take two take two I made it but uh, that was the hairiest thing in a whole movie because there's you know when you're moving machines for real and you know you know the camera's rolling and that, that's yeah it's that's tough but I, I made it somehow and uh, obviously Jean-Claude Van Damme is in this cast do you get any screen time with him and uh, how's your relationship with him these days well you know I saw him on Universal Soldier 3 mm-hmm. just briefly we had you know a fight scene there and um, you know I've kind of seen him over the years and, and of course this time around, you know, he's the bad guy. I'm the good guy. And last time I was the bad guy, which is kind of interesting. <laughs> so um, he has a great role. He's, um, you know, one of the better roles in the picture, the best written role. Because Sly writes really good villains, you know. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He doesn't pull back. I mean, he makes them really villainous and really bad, which is better than doing some kind of half-assed villain version, you know, like in some movies. So, um, you know, it was uh, it was cool to see him. And, and he's kind of... He stayed on by himself a lot, because uh, the character is kind of bizarre and off off the wall. So, I think people are going to like him a lot in the picture. And uh, I, I said hello, and we talked about the old days, and you know, Universal Soldier killing each other in the fake rain for weeks <laughs> at a time. But it was fun to see him. <laughs> Chris um, actually predicted at the end of his feature for the first movie that, that Chuck would be recruited uh, for the sequel. Wow. So it's exciting that he is. Can you tell us anything about what he, his role in the film? Well, um, yeah, I was also excited about Chuck, and I think um, he's the guy that most people wanted to sort of meet in person. Like all the crew, all the producers, you know, they all waited for Chuck is going to show up. I guess part of because of all the you know Chuck Norris jokes and websites whatnot, you want to see the man in person, you know. And uh, uh, well, what happens in the film is that. Uh, he's kind of the cameo who appears, and, and we're in the Expendables are in trouble, in real trouble in Eastern Europe. And for some reason, this guy shows up out of nowhere, 
kills about 50 people and kind of uh, <laughs> just comes walking down the street. <laughs> Chuck's like, Booker, what are you doing here? Anyway, so uh, you know, he was the nicest guy. I mean, of all, all the actors in the picture, he was like the sweetest with the crew and took pictures for everybody. And uh, so it was nice to see because... He could have been, because he's a bit older than everybody else, and I'm yeah. sure he was tired from the trip. He could have been more of a diva, but he was the nicest of all of them, which is kind of, uh, I really, I was impressed by that. Fantastic. Is there a sense with this one that people are fighting more so in the, in the last film for a screen time? Because there's so many people now, so many parts. I think so. I, I think that, um, yeah, for instance, my character's not going to be in it as much, probably not as featured. In the last one, it was, it was, um, I think I'll be in it more, but I won't. There won't be as much of an arc because it was me and Rourke in the last one had, you know, kind of. We showed kind of the dark side of what happens, you know, if you do too much of this mercenary work, you know. So like there was two, there was an anchor there. Yeah. And darkness was Stallone. Uh, um, he he, you know, he likes that. And, and the director's cut's even darker. I don't know if you've seen it, but it's kind of more nostalgic and moodier. You yeah. Know? Um, but in this one, because you have so many characters, you kind of. You have to sort of make it work, you know, like in a, in a few scenes instead of like five scenes. You got two, so um, yeah. But I think you know the people go to see the movie, and you, as an actor, you have to accept that it's the package that's important, not so much what you know what you do. You just got to do your best, but hope that the whole thing works. Absolutely. And uh, it's Gunnar Jensen, which uh, is one of your your best character names. You've got some interesting ones. I know Ali in particular is obsessed with your character names throughout your career. Oh, really? B- believe it or not, I've actually <laughs> compiled a series of my favorite action movie names. Oh, cool. Now, yours have got some crackers. Obviously, there was Vens, even Drago, obviously. But you've got things like Warchild, Brixos. You know what I mean? They're yeah. proper, like, manly names. Gunnar Jensen is, has to be up there as one of the best. Um, you've also got Nick Gunnar before in Men of War. Oh, yeah. I mean, the list goes on and on. Sam Decker is in this one. Sam Decker. Dr. Sage Menox. Oh, yeah. <laughs> there's always, there's Sounds always, crazy, and he always, was nuts. There's always an X or a Z that just kind of comes in, creeps in for no reason. Um, and... In Battle of the Damned, when you got a name like Max Gatling, yeah, that's a good one. I hope that's a really good script. You know, I didn't like it because I don't like zombie movies, and I don't. I'm robots, and as it's zombies versus robots, I don't think so. <laughs> but then I read the script, and it was like it's really cool. It's uh, like Escape from New York, but like a modern version. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, you got uh, Max Gatling, and you got you know something like so somebody comes up with that name, you got to read the script, right? Because yeah. you know the guy has a sense of humor. Absolutely, it tells you the tone of the film right yeah. off. Yeah, Kevin Dynamite. That'd be a, that'd be a great line. Uh, do you uh, ever have ideas yourself for your own character names? Yeah. Um, well, I'm not as good as that. I just come up with some. So it's hard to come know. up with something better than Dolph Lundgren. To be fair. To be fair. <laughs> Thanks. Well, Stallone's good. You know, he comes up with good stuff like Toll Road and yeah. you know whatever it is. Christmas, Lee Christmas, Lee Christmas. It's not bad at all. Um, we have some questions from our Twitter followers. Dolph. Yeah, sure. Uh, I just want to run some past you. David Waddington says, aside from your sweet ear necklace in Universal Soldier, uh-huh. what other the great props have you used in the past? Oh, gosh. I mean, I have a nice knife in uh, Expendables, you know. It's about the size of a sword, you know. Slice, like, you think that's big enough? Like, yeah, <laughs> I think. Yeah, Sly, thanks. <laughs> Do you keep it? Uh, no, I By think it's part of the... Yeah. Exp- no, you probably use it for, uh, for... The best is when you get the hilt, because, you you know, when you did the CGI killing, so you just got the hilt, and you pull it out, and then you have to m- mimic it going through somebody's neck or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe not for the PG-13, yeah. 
No, you're right. <laughs> um, Iron Man, I don't think it's the real Iron Man, uh, says, Hey guys, hey Mr. Lundgren, who would Dolph cast as a lead in a new Punisher film apart from himself? Oh, gosh, I don't know. I mean, isn't that guy, um, you know who's good? Is that Chris Hemsworth? Oh, yeah, like yeah, him. yeah. Yeah, I think he'd, he'd be good, maybe. Yeah. Did you ask me that? He need dark hair, I suppose. He's, bl- he's a blonde. He's a blonde, yeah, he's a blonde hair, blonde, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I didn't talk too much last night. I, I, I met his brother on the set, you know, of, mm. um, of Expendables 2. Of course, absolutely. Yeah. Fantastic. Why not the brother? Liam is nice, too. He's a good Just guy. Any, yeah. I think there's, a, there's more Hemsworths waiting. Really? Just, there's yeah. a production line there's of like Hemsworths. There's like another yeah. seven <laughs> guys. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They're like the anti-dwarfs. Um, there's a, Andy Spiros asks, was Brandon Lee exaggerating after seeing oh. the Iron Rod in Showdown? Oh, Jesus. <laughs> I know. That's the funniest line. I, I, we talked about that today. Whoever wrote that, I mean, what were they on? <laughs> I mean, it says, in case we get, in case we get killed, you know, it's like... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, at Kenny1869, which is John Kennedy, um, asks, if you remember meeting The Rock as a kid. Now, we we recently ran an article in Empire. Uh-huh. Uh, we interviewed The Rock, and he says right at the end of the article that about 10, 12 years ago, when right. he was just a, a, a budding bodybuilder slash wrestler, uh-huh. he met you coming out of a gym, and you, you gave him some advice for the future. Now, do you remember that at all? I remember seeing him at Gold's, but I wonder if it was that long, if it was... Maybe longer ago. Mm-hmm. Um, he said it meant it meant a lot to him that you took really? time out of your I schedule. I can't remember to, that, but I know I remember kid. seeing him at the gym, uh, at the, you know, um, at the goals. And he's one of those guys who really looks the part. You know, there are not many left, but you know, like oh, yeah. like Stallone. Even if he wasn't an actor, if he came walked in somewhere, you'd look at him like, wow, look a you know, look a tough guy, right? Mm. But you know, aren't all the same. But he's one of them now that looks that looks the part really. Fantastic. Um, uh, Allison Canada, again, not the real Canada, says, uh, you played a rock star drummer. Do you really play the drums or any other musical instruments? <laughs> I do play the drums. I started when I was nine and I did it for a couple of years. I was in a couple of bands, some marching bands and some rock bands. And, and then I, I came up with a script idea and I had to practice for you know yeah. a few months to be able to pull it off. I mean, it's, it's a better high to go on stage and play drums than any kind of acting you can think of. It's oh, really? much cooler. Yeah, much cooler. In front of an audience, to be a rock and roll drummer, forget it. <laughs> forget acting. <laughs> and uh, forget it, back in the 70s, it was even better. <laughs> there was some extras that came with it. Oh, if you can remember the 70s, then, <laughs> then you weren't there, as I No, say. I wasn't, yeah. but I, I read the stories. <laughs> um, Matt Foz asks, can Dolph do any Arnie impressions? I'd love uh, to hear them. Yes, I like a gun, a big one. <laughs> That's some Expendables, too. Oh really? Oh, there's a there's a yeah. there's a hot sneak peek. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and then he has the one the line to Garner when he goes, "Cut me loose, Frankenstein." <laughs> <laughs> so he has. Does, does Arnold have some action in this one? Though? Yeah, he does. He's got a lot of action. Yeah, yeah there you go. There you go. We're good. So this master's degree in chemical engineering that you you had. Yeah. About thirty years now. You've you've had this thing. Yeah. Do you? Do you Ever use it? Do you ever like do a bit of chemical engineering for a bit of you know, on the I mean, sidelines just for uh, a bit of hobby? Mix good drinks. I can do that. <laughs> a hell of a drink. Um, I uh, well, I do use some engineering in, in Expendables too, actually, because Sly has picked up on it's a gunner. You find out in, in the beginning of the movie when he gets drunk uh, before he was you know became this. You know he was a smart guy. He went to MIT and all of this. And Gunner is like, yeah, and I had a Fulbright scholarship. And then <laughs> later, <laughs> later in the movie, of course, we end up in a situation where. 
gunner has to use his head to get it then get him out of some you know cave or something like when they're stuck so we'll see how it goes so gunner, gunner's become MacGyver all of a sudden it's, yeah it's yeah. MacGyver like a one scene MacGunner <laughs> and the last question Dolph is from Stephen Watson he asks have you ever looked at a Kit Kat and smugly stated I must break you <laughs> oh many times I will do so in about two hours from now when I'm done with this Listen. my god look at beautiful that beautiful day thanks Nick man. has just produced wow. a Kit Kat Chunky from nowhere I don't know I, I don't want to know where you were hiding that Chunky wow that's a big one thanks and on that bombshell it's time to say thanks a lot to Dolph Lundgren thank thanks you. guys thank you Dolph thanks that's fun Well, Dolph is so big, uh, usually the only way is down, but we're determined to finish on a high with this week's reviews. Uh, again, most film companies are running scared at the moment of the Olympics, uh, but the big release this week, there is one, <laughs> I'm delighted to say, is uh, Seth MacFarlane's talking teddy bear comedy, Ted. has been huge in the States. Uh, what do we make of this? Very funny, I think. Even if um, you know, you, you're, you've been a bit disappointed in the last couple of seasons of Family Guy, um, this one... It has all the things that you liked about the first few seasons of Family Guy in that it's, you know, very funny without being like completely needlessly, gratuitously kind of repetitive. Um, <laughs> so the the, pre- the uh, premise for anyone who hasn't come across it yet, and you probably have, is that an eight-year-old boy wishes that his teddy bear would come to life. Um, he grows up to be Mark Wahlberg. Um, the problem that he has is that the teddy bear does come to life, which is great when you're eight, but perhaps less so when you're about 35 and the teddy bear is still living with you and you're both basically getting stoned every day and perhaps <laughs> performing less than optimally um, at work and in your relationship with the gorgeous Mila Kunis. Um, and I find it all rather charming, actually. Good. Phil, you wrote a review. I did. I did. absolutely love this film. I've got to say, I th- it made me laugh more than any film I've seen for quite a while. Maybe I was just in the right mood for it. It's a very silly, you know, I, I think I never really was a Family Guy fan. Mm. So that I kind of came into it thinking, mm, I don't know if I'm going to, you know, this Stewie and the Pete... Griffin. Yeah, but there's less of that, and there's none um, of the, you know, and it's like that time when we blah 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 there's flashbacks. About two moments, but they're very very short. Yeah, and so it's okay. Uh, and there are a couple of gratuitous pops at celebrities <laughs> just because they haven't been successful, which seems a little bit bit mean spirited. But I apart guess. from that, I, re- I really enjoyed it. It's mm. a very um, heartfelt movie in a strange way there, there, there's a fantastic cameo that we won't spoil which for me provided the funniest moment of the film Definitely. not just because of the cameo but because of Mark Wahlberg's reaction to the person who's who's making the cameo uh, which just I thought was absolutely fantastic I thought Mark Wahlberg was, was great I've always really loved him as a comic actor from like way back Three Kings I Heart Huckabees yeah. yeah I wasn't such a big fan of I Heart Huckabees but I just you know he just he's has great, great, he's good great, he's great subtle physical kind of um, style um, and he's fantastic, and he make, he kind of makes it makes it work. I think Mila Kunis is great. Mm. Joel McHale from Community plays again like, a pivotal role as the weaselly sort of boss figure. He gives good weasel, doesn't he? He does. He's really good playing against you know a similar kind of character, I guess, but more. Yeah, more if, so. if you basically you know less less charm than in mm. Community yeah. by, by a factor of quite a lot yeah. and we should mention of course that Ted uh, is played by Seth MacFarlane using mocap he wore straps around his normal clothes he, did he? Yeah. you can do that these days you can do that these days um, he tried on the leotards what have I been wearing then? <laughs> <laughs> yeah we were, we meant to speak to you about that Chris actually uh, it's it's becoming a little bit you know stinky. oh god I should totally go and change for next uh, next podcast yeah damn it uh, but yeah he, he is playing Ted and he's very very funny in it 
Mm. He's a very funny guy um, and, and ridiculously multi-talented. Like he's, you know, obviously now launched, what, three massively successful animated shows. He's now a film director as well. And he's singing in the proms this summer. He is. He's got a good voice, hasn't he? He has a fantastic voice. Um, so, yeah, what a get. So, Ted, we gave... Four stars. Four stars to go see it this week. Uh, also out this week and capitalising on The Dark Knight Rises fever is Christian Bale's follow-up film, The Flowers of War. He filmed it before The Dark Knight Rises, but hey, look at that, it's out. Um, he teams up with Chinese director Sang Yimou, the genius behind Hero and the uh, House of Flying Daggers, for an epic tale of redemption uh, during the rape of Nanking, isn't it, Phil? That's correct, yes. And uh, it's, you know, it's very, very good, this film. And um, Steven Spielberg was involved in bringing together Christian Bale and it, and Ji Moon, the director, and it kind of it's it's a sort of nice circularity to it for Christian Bale because obviously Empire of the Sun was was sort of where it all started for yeah. him, and this is set five years before um, the fall of Shanghai, but it's in the same world. It's set during the the, the Sino-Japanese War. The Rape of Nanking seems to be something that filmmakers are visiting on a regular basis which is challenging because it's the, probably the bleakest thing this side of Shinna's list we saw a film a couple of years ago called The City of Life and Death yeah. by a Chinese director called Lu Chan who, which also you know takes Spielberg's um, Saving Private Ryan aesthetic to, to combat and, and really you know runs with it it's f- phenomenally visceral and this has bits of that as well Zhang Jimu we talked about the Beijing Olympics he, he choreographed that so this is a man that, that plays with a colossal kind of visual palette this is the most expensive Chinese movie ever made believe and it feels like it as well um it, there's 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 combat scenes in it but but it is such a bleak topic christian bell's character is a is a is a fictional um american mortician called john miller who he's kind of conflicted if you think about john malkovich and empire of the sun he's that kind of street rat but but more so he, he doesn't speak chinese so he doesn't really he's just a drifter and he gets you know, like Zhang Jimu's other films, House of Flying Daggers and Hero, it's about heroism, conflicted heroes. And he's kind of that. He he changes quite fast when the Japanese arrive. He's in church. Um, he arrives at a church, adopts this choir um, of Chinese girls, and then a group of, of prostitutes takes take refuge in the church as well. And he becomes a de facto leader for these people and, and stands up against the basically... You know, the rape is not uh, is basically raping and pillaging by the Japanese soldiers, and he stands between them. So, it's a epic, sweeping war movie. Um, it's bleak at times. It plays, you know, with broad brushstrokes, and uh, you know, it's very good. Fantastic. And uh, very, very briefly, you know, when you when you think of Shang Yimou, you think of you know stunning visuals. Again, is that the case here? Can he can he unleash his, his full palette, his full his full range of tools in in such a bleak landscape? Uh, there's no waifu in this one, but there's a set piece battle at the beginning, which is uh, phenomenal. He finds beauty in this, which I think is incredibly difficult to do in a way that isn't very trite. And um, the, you know, he looks for there's a lot of a lot of, sh- sort of lingering shots through stained glass windows. One of the prostitutes. He pioneers something I've described as swaying bum cam. There's a lot of chiffon velvet kind of <laughs> swaying of hips and stuff, which yeah, it's, it's difficult to balance all of these, you know, conflicting, conflicting things. But he does it very, very well. Fantastic. So uh, go check that out if, if you can, because it's in key cities. Uh, and we've had an embarrassment of documentary riches recently with uh, The Art of Rap and last week's Searching for Sugar Man. And that continues this week with the excellent sports documentary Undefeated, doesn't it, Ian? It does, yeah. This is the winner of this year's uh, Best Documentary 
feature and it's basically it's about a, a high school football team the Manassas Tigers who haven't made the playoffs in 110 years and it's their season uh, that follows it follows the whole season and it's partly about some of the stories of the kids but also it's about this coach uh, they have a coach called Coach Bill who's kind of this sort of benevolent leader and it's um and he's just a revelation. He's he's a you know Dennis Quaid should play him in a movie. He's <laughs> he's absolutely terrific, and um, it's full of humanity. It has plays with loads of sports cliches. It feels a bit like fiction in some senses, and um, that's probably as it's as good a sports documentary we've had for a while. Now, as a, somebody who's a fan of like Friday Night Lights, the drama and also the TV series, is does this bring something? Absolutely. New to it is. It, well, wow. it, it's Friday Night Lights, but it's real. It's, awesome. it's actually like that. It's a, it's a real life Friday Night Lights. Where would you put it in the canon of, of sports documentaries like of Hoop Dreams and When We Were Kings? It's not, yeah, it's not there. It's not quite there. As I say, if some, some of it feels a bit forced and fictional, but it's really entertaining. It is, and it doesn't end how you think it would, and um, it's, not, it's not obvious. And uh, it's, yeah, it's, it's really good stuff. Fantastic. So again, check that out. I th- again, I think that's just a key city's release. If you happen to live in a key city, then do get along to see <laughs> Undefeated and the Flowers of War. I've still no idea what makes a key city. That's it for this week's dose of film-related fun. Join us next week when we'll be discussing the likes of The Bourne Legacy and Brave, the new Disney Pixar film. Until then, it's goodbye from Helen. Toodaloo. Goodbye from Ian Freer. Bye-bye. Goodbye from Phil. Goodbye. And goodbye from me. See you next week.